Hello, hello, and welcome to Dubliners by Dubliners. We are on episode 12, and this month we'll be covering Ivy Day in the committee room. I'm your co-host, Lachlan Coyne, and I'm joined as always by... John Clefeather. Thanks, John. So, we'll have the story linked in the description for you, and, you know, as we always say, please check out our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at the handle by Dubliners. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, be sure to give us five stars on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you might be listening to this. Today's episode, we're going to be dealing with politics and specifically Irish politics at the end of the 19th century, looking really at Irish nationalism and the concept of home rule. Uh, We'll probably take a slightly different tack with this episode. We'll give you a high-level overview of Irish politics and nationalism up to the point in the story itself. Uh, We'll do a bit of a deep dive on Charles Stuart Parnell, who's obviously the key figure in this story. And we'll talk a little bit about kind of Joyce's perception and reaction and how he's presented these ideas in this story. This is a unique story relative to the other ones of the collection in that it's very explicitly political. But after the race, two gallants, a little cloud, and to a lesser extent, the dead also touch on these ideas, but not in as explicitly a political way. So I'll kick us off with a bit of the historical context. Ireland as a nation has effectively always been under invasion or rule by a, a foreign or a, a non-national power pretty much throughout its entire history. In the 12th century, it was invaded by the Anglo-Normans, so really the, the beginning of the, the kind of British invasion of, of what we now would recognise as, as both Britain and Ireland. Um, that was, became a relatively stable political entity, I would say, over, over that period. In the 16th century, then, you have the conquest by the Tudors, and this is really the beginning of the concept of plantation and, and the idea of planting British people in into the country of Ireland to, to maintain that political stranglehold that they had and, and to maintain their control as, you know, effectively Ireland has historically always integrated mostly with its its, its captors and invaders and, and, and led to a, a re-emergence of a, a desire to distinguish itself politically. Many historians have looked at either the 17th century flight of the Earls or a little bit later in the 18th century, the emergence of a, a real traditional national religious identity. And this is really what the modern or the early, the, the more recent modern history of Ireland has dealt with in terms of that distinction between Catholic Irish nationalists and Protestant Irish unionists. Following this you'd have then the emergence of the likes of Grattan, Wolftone and Emmett leading up to Parnell ultimately calling for Irish self-rule. And this is all coming around in the, in the melting pot or the, the global historical context of the French Revolution and really the, the re-establishment or, or emergence of separate legal nations as we broadly understand them today in the, in the, in the modern world. I think it's also important at this point to, to, to flag the um, the famine in the mid-19th century as, as, as really a key turning point in the desire to establish Irish significance and, 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 and an Irish identity. I think, John, you've got a, a lot of a lot to talk about on, on, on this point, so I'll, I'll hand over to you. Yeah, um, I suppose, as you mentioned, there's several efforts to achieve a degree of home rule or independence for Ireland. And what's interesting is Irish Parliament, for a brief period around 1782, was granted some powers, but they were taken away again with the Act of Union in, in 1800, 1801. 
So essentially with the Act of Union, the powers were moved to Westminster in England. At that time, also rebellions from um, Wolfe Tone in 1798 rebellion, and then also uh, Robert Emmert, 1803. And so Ireland is being ruled from Westminster uh, up until, yeah, I suppose the next big turning point, as you mentioned, is the famine. Famine is a huge event in Irish history, possibly the, the, the most significant event in the, in the history of the country. It led to deaths of uh, approximately a million people. The numbers are, are very hard to gauge and millions more emigrated. And even post the famine, the population in Ireland continued to decline. The, the cause of the famine, the immediate cause, is the potato blight. So a lot of Irish farmers were reliant on potatoes for crops, for subsistence, to, to eat and to survive. Uh, there was a disease that affected the potatoes and so there was a massive famine, massive hunger. People people starved to death. Um, the situation was then exacerbated by the response of the British Parliament, thinking that Ireland's problems were their own to solve and so there's very little support given to, to the starving people. This environment then led to a strong anti-English sentiment uh, in, in the country and led to the emergence of movements for national independence. Uh, one of them was the IRB, which was uh, an organisation that aimed to achieve Irish independence through armed struggle. That had a sister organisation and found in the United States uh, known as the Fenians. Eventually, kind of both organisations came to be known as the Fenians. But yeah, their defining characteristic was that they wanted to achieve independence through armed struggle. They also staged a, a failed rebellion that wasn't wasn't particularly successful. Some of their members were then executed in Manchester when, during a police raid, they um, accidentally killed a policeman. And as a result, they became martyrs and they became sort of a, a focal point for people who were trying to achieve independence. So that's kind of one strand that continues to run up to this point and it comes into this story. Another important aspect of the movement for Irish independence was the more parliamentary movement. Um, Isaac Butt was a, was a key figure in founding this movement. So the idea there was that Ireland would have home rule, which would be a limited sort of independence, and not complete independence. It would remain part of the British Empire, but it would have a limited amount of independence to rule its own affairs. Uh, it was felt that this would be more palatable to uh, British politicians because there was fears in Britain about the breakup of the empire. If Ireland stopped to be part of the empire, then other parts of the British Empire that were you know, more important, even more lucrative to them, that then these other countries would uh, try to break off as well. So this movement then started by Isaac Butt was eventually also, Parnell became a, a leading uh, proponent of that. And the, yeah, the third strand then you have coming into uh, kind of Parnell's life and, and how he did politics was the land agitation or the land league. Most of the land in Ireland was owned by rich landlords, in most cases Protestant landlords, and there was very little security for tenants. They could be easily evicted, their rents could be raised, they didn't have any kind of bargaining power. So there was a big struggle then to achieve more rights for tenants. Michael Davitt was the um, important instigator here, along with Parnell, in terms of setting up uh, yeah, the Land League and, and campaigning for rights for tenants. Um, they did this through numerous means. One uh, method they used was the boycott, which is actually where the word boycott comes from. Um, so there was a Captain Boycott uh, who was a landlord's agent. And so he was uh, involved in evicting a, a local tenant. And so the idea was that they would shun him from society and not engage with him, not sell to him, not allow him to participate in society. And so yeah, here's where the, the modern word boycott comes from. 
There were also um, protesting evictions where thousands of people would show up to prevent evictions. And so, yeah, all these different strands play into Purnell's politics. And he kind of manages to sit in between these these movements. Uh, he's kind of ambiguous exactly in what he stands for, but he makes use of all these movements to further uh, his aims and, and his career, which is primarily aimed at achieving a sort of Irish independence. For a lot of people, they see him as this character that's that's going to accomplish this. And for a while, it seems like things are going well. He manages to achieve... So he's running in, in the parliament in England and he manages to achieve... Uh, a large number of seats from Ireland and in 1895 they end up having the balance of power so the Liberals hold some seats, the Conservatives hold some seats, neither have enough for a majority but uh, Purnell's party is enough to tip either one over and so he forms an alliance with Gladstone on the basis that Gladstone will deliver a home rule bill through the parliament. Gladstone does this but the bill never passes because members of his own party rebel against him and so the home rule bill fails Shortly after this, Parnell has his downfall. So his downfall comes about because he has been in a relationship with a married woman known as Catherine O'Shea. While this is kind of an open secret in political circles, once it becomes public, it becomes a big issue for Parnell because Gladstone disowns him. And additionally, the church in Ireland, the Catholic church in Ireland, they don't want an adulterer leading their the movement for Irish independence. And so... He is forced to face down his party. The majority of his party vote against him in the committee room in Westminster. Uh, they don't want him leader anymore. Parnell is unwilling to accept this. He continues campaigning. He campaigns even ignoring his own health issues. Uh, and eventually this leads to his death the same year, 1891. His funeral is, is massively attended. It's a huge event in Dublin. But his legacy at the point when he dies is, is, is kind of a contested thing. Uh, Joyce himself has has very distinct views on it, which I I think will be expressed in this story. So absolutely, John. I think um, it's worth noting after the writing of this story, but before its publication in 1912, Joyce wrote a political essay, "The Shade of Parnell," where he refers to Parnell as Ireland's uncrowned king, and you know expresses significant distaste, I suppose, for what Joyce would consider the traitors and betrayers of um, Parnell and his legacy. The context as well, especially for the relationship between Parnell and Kitty O'Shea and Kitty O'Shea's or Catherine O'Shea and her husband, uh, Captain O'Shea, is interesting. So their relationship had effectively dissolved many years before the divorce. However, Catherine O'Shea's aunt was a very wealthy individual and her next of kin was Kitty O'Shea. So Captain O'Shea's refusal to divorce Kitty O'Shea was driven in large part by his desire to have access to that wealth. And so he initiated divorce proceedings a month after Catherine O'Shea's aunt died and she inherited her fortune. The reason or the rationale, the specific rationale for why Parnell was downfallen or what solidified, I suppose, the controversy around the relationship he had with Catherine O'Shea was that he was officially named in the divorce proceedings by Captain O'Shea, which was in British society at the time, a means of publicly denouncing somebody as an adulterer or as a trigger for for an adulterer. So while it was an open secret and Catherine O'Shea was, was openly living with, with Parnell, or they were at least openly living together, 
uh, by being named in the divorce proceeding, it was now a matter of, of the public record, and, and, and therefore this this is what triggered the response from the the, the Catholic bishops at the time, who uh, who then sought to eliminate Parnell from from the Irish nationalist movement. Again, we'll, we'll probably talk about this a little bit later on as we we dive into the story. But for context, um, the King Edward the Seventh, who was on the throne at the time, was famous as an adulterer and. While he was never explicitly named in divorce proceedings, he had been threatened with being named in the divorce of one of the women he was very openly having an affair with and her respective husband. And only through kind of significant political pressure was his name removed from the divorce proceedings. So that um, that that's referenced in passing later on in, in, in the text of, of, of this story. Following on from, from this and tied to the publication history of Dubliners itself, so obviously the collection was finalized around kind of 1905 and and Joyce spent a number of years trying to get it published before it was actually um, published in its extant form. So Dubliners itself was published in 1914 and I think for for context um, the third Home Rule Bill which was uh, the final one passed in uh, eventually passed in 1914 um, with royal assent um, was suspended as a result of World War One, I, I suspect that cultural and social history, if it had happened at the time Joyce's writing, would have had a significant influence on the contents of this story, I suspect. Additionally, notable that the third Home Rule Bill was never actually enacted, as, it was, as I said, it was paused due to World War One, and then the Easter Rising, or the, politi- the armed uh, struggle to establish Irish independence was, you know, took place in 1916, and we'll again, I think we'll we'll, we'll talk briefly about the significance of that later on. But um, ultimately, that really mooted, that created a different kind of environment that mooted the, the the need for home rule ultimately, or 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 prompted the 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 need for a much more significant um, independence for Ireland and ultimately led to the the formation of the Irish Free State and ultimately what is now known as the the Republic of Ireland. I think that it's it's important to understand the time and place at which Joyce is writing this is very distinct from even the immediate period after it was published and very, very different uh, politically to the modern day. So, you know, I I think we're talking about this, John, this story is, is... really a much more of a cultural artifact that sits at a very specific place in time as compared with some of the other stories which I think touch on a much more universal concept or ideas that are recognizable and, and, and understandable in, in, in today's modern context. Yeah, I, I think I broadly agree with you there. I mean, you can definitely draw some parallels with uh, today, but we'll uh, we'll maybe get more into that as we go through the story. Saying that, maybe now is a, is a good time to, to jump into the plot summary. So I'll, I'll keep it quite high level on this one, because if, if I get bogged down discussing uh, the individual characters and their leanings, it could take quite some time. But basically, this story involves a bunch of election campaigners so people who are campaigning for uh, a local candidate Richard Tierney in a by-election in Dublin and so they meet in this committee room and mostly they're arriving into this committee room to take shelter from the rain and yeah while they're there they discuss various different things Uh, primarily they discuss whether or not they're going to get paid and whether or not Tierney is going to provide them with alcohol Uh, but they also discuss a little bit about Parnell, Parnell's legacy and a little bit about a uh, proposed visit from King Edward to Ireland and whether or not that should go ahead. 
Um, but throughout these discussions, you have people from across the political spectrum. And uh, so you have kind of a more socialist ca- uh, character, you have a conservative character, and you have a various sort of people who have various levels of alignment with nationalism. What pervades the story is this kind of sense of apathy or the sense of ambiguous loyalties or lack of conviction, um, which will, yeah, as we discuss the story, that will become evident. So yeah, Lachlan, do you want to kick us off then? How do we approach this story or, or should we just look at the characters as they appear? Yeah, so I think um, if we step away from the content of the story itself and, and, and look at how Joyce has actually structured the narrative here. So distinct from a lot of the other stories we've seen, this doesn't follow a specific character or group of characters per se. And it really is focused on events occurring within this committee room um, the I, um, on Ivy Day being the anniversary of uh, Charles Stuart Parnell, October 6th, as, as, as we've mentioned. And, you know, so effectively it's structured a little bit more like a play than I would say a few of the other stories in that it's, it's kind of set in this single room and you have a huge amount of very physical descriptions, both of the characters themselves and their actions and their movements within within the room itself. So it opens up on old Jack, the caretaker, and a man, Matt O'Connor, who's uh, rolling a rolling up a, a cigarette. And he's there's quite a lengthy passage of describing him both kind of rolling it and, and, and unrolling it as well. Um, the opening passage is uh, Mr. O'Connor had been engaged by Tierney's agent to canvas one part of the ward, but as the weather was inclement and his boots let in the wet, he spent a great part of the day sitting by the fire in the committee room in Wicklow Street with Jack, the old caretaker. They had been sitting thus since the short day had grown dark. It was the 6th of October, dismal and cold out of doors. So right away, it's a, it's a October 6th, you know, it's, it's, it's the days are the days are dark and short in, in, in Dublin. So he doesn't have good boots for the weather, it's getting wet. So he's kind of, rather than actually going out and canvassing, he's just sitting inside next to the fire, chatting away with the old lad. There's a hollowness or a performative nature, I think, to a lot of the actions by these um, characters. They're not actually doing anything. They're, this is really a talking shop. And I think Joyce is teeing us up right at the start of the story to, to question whether these people are actually doing anything and is, is there merit to what they are doing. The title Ivy Day, again, it's Ivy Day is the anniversary of Pernell's death, as you said, and, and just for historical context, the Pernell's funeral went to Glasnevin Cemetery, and there there was a lot of ivy growing, and so the mourners, a lot of them picked ivy and, uh, and placed it on their jackets as a show of respect, and so hence this Ivy Day, and we see a couple of characters, not all of them, I think there's two of them, it's, it's called out that they're, they're wearing the ivy during this story. But the idea of the mark of respect that, that people had for Purnell and how, how they approached him and how what he represented to them is then, as you say, immediately contrasted with these this character who is campaigning for uh, Mr. Tierney, but is actually just spending his day in inside getting warmed by the fire rather than if he was if he was truly sincere in his conviction he'd probably be out there campaigning hard and, and, and trying to win votes for his candidate that's it and that scene leads us immediately into um as matt o'connor is lighting a cigarette that he he had been rolling up the caretaker jack offers to get him a, a match or, or, or something to light it with and he says no no it's fine and he takes out one of his election pamphlets lights it in the fire and uses that as a as a match to to light his cigarette so there's, there's immediately there joyce is kind of very cleverly subtly demonstrating the disposability of the idea of these elections, that there's no real reverence or respect given to Mr. Tierney or, or, or to what they're doing. It's really just a, a job for them and discussions of money. And we, we've, we've talked about the concept of simony and the, the, there'll be a fair bit of a simonic 
activities and, and, and events and images uh, reoccurring throughout this story. Another theme that reoccurs throughout this story is children and, and how children are being raised and what they're becoming. This is the, the thing that Matt O'Connor and Old Jack are, are, are discussing immediately during that scene with the, with the cigarette and so on during the opening scene. There's this kind of a lamenting of what, what children are becoming and that they're going the wrong way in the world. And so you have Old Jack lamenting and he says, Ah, yes, he said, continuing, it's hard to know what way to bring up children. Now who'd think he'd turn out like that? I sent him to the Christian brothers, and I'd done what I could for him. But there he goes, boozing about. I tried to make him some way decent. And so there's almost an abdication of responsibility, as in I sent him to the Christian brothers, so that should be enough. His child should turn out fine, but now he's turned into a boozer. Uh, We see, of course, all the characters in this story are are very interested in in boozing themselves. So there's a definite lack of a personal responsibility there in terms of of bringing up the next generation. I think that's also something, again, Joyce being very uh, praising or even perhaps fawning over Parnell. I think he sees Parnell as being someone who tried to birth something greater. And then you have these characters who are basically abdicating responsibility for the next generation, just complaining about how the next generation are developing, but not actually trying to enact a better future for them or a better future for Ireland. If I could pick up on one, the, one thing you said there, the uh, Joyce is possibly fawning over, over Parnell. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's very explicitly Joyce is, is, is fawning over Parnell. The, um, the poem that he attributes to the character Heinz later on in the story is obviously written by, by Joyce himself. And to, to say that's fawning is uh, <laughs> probably an understatement. We'll quote that for you later. But um, no, absolutely. I, th- I think definitely the discussion around children and specifically Jack's 19-year-old son who he considers a bit of a layabout and, and a, a drunkard. I think the suggestion by Joyce here is that in the absence of Parnell and the strong guidance offered by Parnell and certainly the, the, the swipe of the Christian brothers, I think is a suggestion that the Catholic Church and their role in dismissing Parnell or undermining Parnell, but without providing any additional leadership, is is, is, is meant to be mirroring the issue here with, with Jack's son, the idea that the people they've effectively foregone their political allegiance due to the morality imposed on them by the Catholic Church. But that morality or that moral guidance doesn't actually lead to any action. And, you know, the Church doesn't have a strong opinion on drinking or at least kind of alcoholism within Irish culture wasn't overly threatened or challenged by the Catholic Church. And and, and that's being reflected in, in, in this metaphor, this image here. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk again about uh, the role of alcohol and alcohol and pol- politics that, that appears kind of quite frequently throughout this, uh, this story. But if we, if we move on, we've, we've got the character of uh, Joe Hines entering the room now. And I think he presents a, a different characteristic or a different perspective. He is really more of a nationalist figure and he's probably the most strongly left-leaning I guess is the the political direction if we if we could attribute that and it's it's it's, it's hard really to, to to attribute kind of traditional or conventional left-right political um leanings or machinations to these characters as, as they're all effectively you know I, I think by modern standards they'd all be considered extremely left-wing but Heinz enters and he's, he's certainly considered the most Fenian by uh, by some of the other characters, or, or or the most closely associated with the the nationalists, and he's a very strong, as we've noted, a very strong supporter of uh, Parnell. It's interesting, Heinz. He he rides into this area where a lot of people are campaigning for tyranny, but he seems to promote another candidate a little bit more, uh, who's Colgan. I, I I'm not sure I would agree with you that by modern standards, they'd uh, all be considered quite left leaning, but 
Heinz is definitely all of the characters, definitely the most left leaning, and he even he expresses a, a Marxist theory of value at some stage where he says it's labor produces everything. So Heinz is interesting in that he seems to have uh, a little bit more ideals than some of the others. I mean, as we said, we'll discuss later. He's the one who wrote the poem at the end of the story. He's also one of the ones wearing the ivy on his lapel, and he's also stridently defends Colgan, the the other candidate. Seems to have a little bit more ideals about him, but at the same time, he's just coming around to this uh, committee room, like the others, spends his time needling the others a little bit or disagreeing with them, but he's not actually going out there and, and actively campaigning or doing much himself. So he, even though he, on the surface, seems to be a little bit more idealistic or, or standing by his principles, he's also seems to be just not up to much. He's come here. And in fact, the first thing he asks when he comes in is, is has he paid you yet? He says, hi, Matt. And then he asks, has, has he paid you yet? So even Hines is potentially more concerned with the monetary aspect of political campaigning than the actual ideals behind the, the politics. Yeah, no, certainly. I think there's a purity, I suspect. And to your point, I think Hines is needling O'Connor here by saying, has he paid you yet? Kind of implying that at least um, there's a trustworthiness to, to Colgan as a, as a working man. He understands the value of money to his employees. and he's, he's, he's kind of supporting them, whereas Tierney is presented as he's running on the nationalist ticket. But there's a suspicion that he will be voting for in support of um, King Edward VII's visit to Ireland. So this is a politically fraught visit. Ireland has so the kings have visited uh, the King of England has visited Ireland on a a few occasions prior to this, and there's moot, uh, mooted discussion about a possible uh, visit the year following the the in which the story is set, and a question as to whether the Irish governmental body, in whatever guise it has or capacity it has, would offer a welcome or would snub the visit by the king. And for context, the Queen preceding King Edward had considered Ireland to have snubbed her in the past when they refused to officially acknowledge his wedding to the Danish Queen Alexandra and a few other significant events in the, in, the, in the history of the royal family had been effectively ignored by the Irish governmental bodies or the, the representatives of Ireland that the, the Queen would have expected uh, responses from. So the, 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 this was a position that was heavily endorsed by Parnell and Parnell had instructed his, you know, the Irish National Party to ignore previous visits by the King. So it's of significance that Tierney as the candidate, as the nationalist candidate, is likely to vote in favour of offering a welcome to the king and, and acknowledging the king's visit. So this is something that Hines uses to draw a distinction between his candidate Colgan and Tierney as a as a as the nationalist candidate. And, and, and really this this gets to the crux of the political history inherited by Ireland following the death of Parnell, where the nationalist movement is effectively being cannibalized by self-interested people. And it's probably uh, at this point, do we, do we move on to discussion of, of, of Henshi and we get a bit more of a background on, on, on tyranny. And, and So the topic of the King's visit comes up again later, but at this point it's kind of interrupted by the arrival of, of Henshi, another canvasser for tyranny. He, again, when he enters, his immediate concern is money. So he, he, he opens with the statement, no money, boys. All the characters so far have have, have had a, a primary interest in getting paid for their campaigning. Um, and so he, he talks then a little bit about his campaigning and he talks about how he actually, he went to Tierney himself to ask for money. 
So we, we start to get then a little bit of a description of, of Tierney's character. So it's, again, it's it's ambiguous. We hear that he will probably vote for the king to visit. But other than that, we don't really know a whole lot of, of Tierney's politics. And he does seem to be the kind of a kind of character that uh, is more of a, of a uh, like a networker, a political networker, rather than a, an idealist. So Mr. Henshi, Henshi, he asks, as I said, he asks Tierney for, for money for campaigning, and Tierney's response is, oh now, Mr. Henshi, when I see the work going on properly, I won't forget you, you may be sure. So again, it's this giving and receiving favours sort of politics, uh, and not this idealistically driven politics. No, absolutely, there's... Um there's a very mercantile attitude towards um, politics. And I think it's at, at this stage we're presented, Henshi gives a, a bit of a background on tyranny and says, do you not know his history? So his father ran a secondhand store, which has a variety of possible suggestions as to what exactly that could mean. But um, effectively either it's a exactly that, a secondhand store or a store where suits could be bought that weren't tailored so kind of effectively just ready cut clothes and this idea of, of, of kind of much cheaper clothing but as well there's a, a reference to the fact that on a Sunday morning before mass all the men would be down in the store and there's a black bottle that his father kept up on the top shelf um, heavily applied to be some kind of alcohol or uh, a kind of distilled pochine or something like this and there's I suppose again just this idea that alcohol religion money there, there's something unseemly about this or that he's not really a good person and that the wealth he's generated is through the black market and rather than kind of out in the open as a, as a traditional businessman and i think a little bit later it's established that Tierney's a a publican and owns a, owns a number of properties across the, the the city of dublin so again it's kind of um distinguishing him as a mercantile individual and we, we, we've talked about this in a couple of the other stories the idea of the, these kind of wealthy high earning Irish people as distinct from the the kind of the majority of the country would still have been kind of either the poor laborers either on the on the farms or in in the industries and factories that have emerged in in Ireland in this in this kind of 19th century period one other aspect of, of, of tyranny and I don't think we mentioned it we're given a, a snippet from the election leaflet or the manifesto at the beginning and it refers to Tierney as a PLG or a poor law guardian and effectively the poor law was an act introduced by the British government in 1838 in response to significant um, poverty within the Irish nation and interestingly immediately preceding the famine period so Effectively, what this did was it legislated for the establishment of poor houses or workhouses where people who were destitute could go and perform manual labor, oftentimes with no purpose, in exchange for money. And effectively, it was a social welfare system, but preceding the concept of true social welfare work was performed that, in many cases, needed to be done, civil works and things like that, but also simply building roads for the sake of building roads. Uh, you have a huge number of these, especially in it's, uh, rural Ireland, there's um, a huge number of roads that just go nowhere, that just cut through a field and then just end in a dead end, uh, effectively built by manual labourers to give them something to do because the concept of social welfare was uh, just not, not in existence. So as a poor law guardian, he was responsible for the managing and administration of, the, of, the, of these poor houses. So again, it, it's 
a positive thing in the sense of helping the Irish help themselves, but effectively the, the British government were not happy with, I suppose, the, the idea that you had to take money from the Crown. Yeah, he's put it in his election pamphlet as, as obviously something he, he wants to advertise, but the PLG, the Poor Law Guardians, were not particularly charitable or if you were someone who was reliant on, on this organization it was in many cases you had to do with a difficult administration and you had to do this difficult work so yeah it wasn't exactly uh such a such a nice uh, thing in reality and yeah just to your other point you made a, a little bit earlier about the the black bottle on the shelf i suppose the, the key thing to point out there is that in his his clothes shop or in his second hand shop he wouldn't have had a license and so he is essentially stealing from the uh, the the business of publicans and he was also probably selling outside of licensing hours so selling when the pubs weren't allowed to open so all in all this idea of money this idea of being the transactor of the british money the person who deals out the money associated with the poor laws and also his father being a black market dealer dealing in, in things slightly outside the law all these things contribute to our idea of tyranny as a deal maker and someone who's dealing a lot with money and and, and seeing what personal gain he can get from that that's kind of the characteristic characterization we have of Tierney at that point. We have Hines then, the, the more socialist character, exits. And we have now uh, ideas of betrayal and of people being not quite what they seem. Um, and specifically around Hines. This is coming, of course, from Henchy, who is, is the character who's been talking a lot up to this point. He's been talking a lot about Tierney and Tierney's history. And so we see now again... Uh, Henshi pejoratively describing another character. Um, in this case, he's suggesting that uh, he thinks that Hines is a spy for, for Colgan, for the other candidate. And then later he goes on from that to talk about spies for, for the castle. So in, in Irish history, the role of the trader or the informer has um, always been a, a contentious one. Um, as we mentioned in the introduction, there were several failed rebellion attempts uh, in Ireland's history. And a lot of those were undermined by informants. It's uh, interesting as well, the, the Fenian organisation that I mentioned that was set up in the, in the, around the time of the famine and that aimed for armed struggle in Ireland, they were a secret organisation specifically set up in cells to minimise the damage that informants could do. So, uh, yeah, so that if, if they were informed on that the informant would only have notion of a small, a small cell rather than the whole organisation. So the idea of being an informant in Ireland has historically been always a, a, a quite a, a treacherous one. Um, Interesting as well. Later, the Irish Irish informants working inside the British government in the War of Independence end up giving information to the Irish. So the informant in that case changes a little bit, but historically the informant has always been a, a very dark thing to be. And so Henshi then casting aspersions on Colgan. Again, he doesn't really seem to have anything to back this up. He seems to just say anyone who's that ideologically pure or who expresses these opinions too stridently must have something going on. When he when he goes to cast aspersions on on Hines again in relation to perhaps being a spy for the castle, being a spy for the British, that is, and Dublin Castle being the seat of of a British rule in Ireland, he he again he doesn't really supply specifics. Henshi says, "Oh, I know that for a fact. They're castle hacks. I don't say Hines. No, damn it. I think he's a stroke above that. But there's a certain little nobleman with a cockeye. You know the patriot I'm." I'm alluding to. And it's interesting as well. In this speech, there's a lot of ellipses. So there's, I don't say Heinz, dot, dot, dot. 
So there's little uh, gaps he's leaving in there to say, oh, I'm not saying Heinz, but I'm also leaving this little gap for you to question, am I, am I actually not saying Heinz or letting uh, letting the, the interpretation open? So yeah, Henshi seems to be this, this character who's really insinuating things without really having much to back it up and then just kind of letting other people see where, where it gets him. Yeah, so that section is, is, is certainly interesting and to your to your point, it, it, it establishes, I suppose, the characters or the positions of the relative positions of the characters we've seen at this point, kind of Matt O'Connor slightly in the middle, friendly towards Heinz. Heinz very outwardly nationalistic and very much a pro Parnell supporter. He's he's explicitly wearing the, the Ivy on his lapel and then uh, Henshi coming in and, 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 and kind of casting aspirations, but also everything we've seen of Henshi up to this point has been very looking for money, looking for drink. He's a bit of a wheeler dealer. He's, he's not presented as a positive character or as someone that we're meant to have a huge amount of faith in, but he's useful as presenting, I suppose, additional information and a little bit of a voice box, maybe. So following his, following Heinz's exit, and this, this little discussion about Heinz as a spy, we have the appearance, the very brief appearance of uh, Father Keown. So Father Keown effectively turns up, looks around the room and walks off again, saying, oh no, I was looking for uh, Mr. Fanning. Mr. Fanning is a character we don't meet here, but he does appear in the story Grace, which we'll be discussing, not the next one, but the one after that. And he's described in that story as a mayor maker of the city, and he's a city agent i believe is the or registration agent is, is, is the exact title so again uh, a member of the irish political class and very much a wheeler dealer kind of again deal maker backroom politician um so again suspicious that this priest character father keown arrives and even his i think his initial physical description is is is, is quite funny if i just read it out here a person resembling a poor clergyman or a poor actor appeared in the doorway his black clothes were tightly buttoned on a short body and it was impossible to say whether he wore a clergyman's collar or a layman's because the collar of his shabby frock coat, the uncovered buttons of which reflected the candlelight, was turned up about his neck. So Joyce is, 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 is very much giving us this um, ambiguity around this, this character and what exactly he is. And it comes in, says he's looking for Mr. Fanning to talk about a deal of some kind or another and then disappears again very quickly once he establishes Mr. Fanning isn't there. And... Following this, then, there's a, a brief discussion of Keown where it's established that he's not tied to any specific church or institution and he, he seems to be this bizarre traveling um, religious figure just kind of preaching from the pulpit but with no specific religious association or, 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 or no allegiance to the Catholic Church specifically or, 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 or that hierarchical structure. And um, again, it, it, it raises this this question and, you know, as, as we talked about, simony is, is hugely important and there's this very strange association then of what exactly is Father Kyo and what is his role and all the characters I think are a bit suspicious to what exactly um, his relationship with Fanning is. Yeah and later we'll hear that that Tierney himself has some relationship with Fanning so kind of tying all these different aspects together in, in terms of the corruption and backroom dealing I think as you said. Following uh, Father Kyo's departure we have a brief interlude fantasy section where Henshi again highlights I think the suspicious nature of the political movement in Ireland or, or, or the political structures in Ireland and, and, and talks about how um, you must owe the city fathers or the, 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 the city aldermen in order to be made the mayor and there's a this fantasy of, of Enchi if he became mayor who he'd appoint and he just points at the people in the room and said oh I'd make you my I'd make you my number two and you'd be my butler and, and, and all these kind of things and he's, he's kind of just uh, 
fantasizing, but again, really reinforcing and underlining the artificiality and, and the corruption, I suppose, is, is really what uh, the corruption rot within the political structure. And she doesn't think that, oh, if I attain this sort of political power, I would deal with the, with these problems. I would make sure that the poor law guardians are, are building things that benefit people, or I'd deal with making it more just society, or achieving Irish independence, his, his immediate thought is just, I'd ride around in these frocks and, and that I'd appoint people I know into positions of power, into positions of influence. So, yeah, it's a complete lack of ideals on his part. That's it, exactly. It's at this point then, actually, the the proceedings are interrupted by the arrival of the boy, as he's uh, as he's described by both the characters and the narrator. And he is bringing the beer from Tierney, so the 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 long promised beer in lieu of payment, a a drink for the um for the for the people who've been campaigning. So um, the beer arrives, but there's no corkscrew to open the bottle's beer. And I mean, I think this is this is an interesting scene because for a few reasons. So one, I think you've got Tierney is suddenly being praised by Henchy for delivering on the beer and, and, and following through on his promise. So there's um, Henchy does a complete 180 here and, and, and starts singing the praises of Tierney, but is then frustrated again, very almost immediately by the, the lack of a corkscrew to, to, to open the bottles. And they send the boy over to the pub across the road to get a corkscrew and, and, and borrow it. And it's it's interesting here, I think we, we, we talked about this briefly, um, the idea that Tierney doesn't really understand the plight of the working class in that, you know, he's provided this beer and it's it's coming from his pub, the Black Eagle, which is quite a heavily British or British sounding pub, but they have to rely on a corkscrew from O'Farrell's pub and a, a much more Irish sounding pub to actually access the drinks and, and, and to actually get the, the benefit of it. So... Um, there's just a, a cute little scene there where the boy goes, gets the corkscrew, he comes back, and when he's turned up back, Henchy offers the, the boy a, a drink, and then immediately when the boy says yes, grudgingly offers him one. So there's, you know, again, I think Joyce just very cleverly teeing up the idea of Henchy as a character who will say something to, to, to appear optically correct, but is then very unhappy when he's asked to deliver on those or to provide to the people. If I can, if I can briefly... Do- defend Henshi on that point. I think it's the old man who, who, who shows uh, his, his grudging nature on that point, who, who hands the bottle grudgingly. But um, yeah, but in general, I think your your characterization of, of Henshi is correct. And um, it's interesting as well, you say he, he did a, a 180 on Tierney, but if he was quite disparaging of Tierney before, he's much more muted in his praise. He and, and in fact, throughout this story, you see the language the characters use to express positivity about things is usually quite muted or a little bit apathetic so in, in this case what what Henshi says is ah well he's not so bad after all he's as good as his word anyhow it's not exactly a ringing endorsement of Tierney but it's kind of a settling it's ah he's as good as his word and you know how I'll, I'll sell for this guy rather than a passionate embrace or endorsement of of Tierney as a, as a character or Tierney's ideals and the only the only time we see some really strong language strong positive language is, is later we'll see a little bit when they talk about Purnell but yeah generally throughout the story the language they use is very weak in terms of any sort of positive endorsement Yes, you're right. There, they uh, they're they're very much more muted in their in their praise than they are in their uh, condemnation. And um, so, I think at the at this stage, then there's a there's a brief interest or a brief a brief point. We 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 talked about this earlier. The idea of um, after the boy leaves, after he's he's sculled his uh, his drink very quickly. One of the characters says that's the thin edge of the wedge. The idea that the boy at seventeen, I think he's he's described as being is. Um, already drinking and, and drinking quite heavily and, and doesn't really 
understand the flow of how things go so he's, he's kind of just following the orders so I think he asks any bottles and the men are all just kind of standing at him saying you've just delivered us the, the full drinks like how, how you, you can see there are no bottles are you you kind of thick and there's this implication of stupidity and, and haplessness I think in, in, in the youth and they there's again I think Joyce is just highlighting this this contrast between the genuinely incompetent youth I think they're they're not wrong in their reading or interpretation of the boy as, as being slightly dim-witted or dull but I think they they themselves are failing to recognize that it's their flaws being reflected in the boy rather than something innate and unique to the youth of today as it were that uh, that causes them to be incompetent yeah absolutely it's, it's something that they have they have birthed or they have created through their through their own actions and attitudes so after the boy leaves Henshi's talking again he seems to be dominating conversation a bit and he's complaining about it. another campaigner again Henshi complaining about someone else this time it's Crofton and again in a kind of comedic moment in this story as soon as Henshi starts complaining about him the, the character Crofton arrives with another man Lyons they go to open some more beer bottles for Crofton and Lyons but it's at this point that they realise they've sent the corkscrew back with the boy and so Henshi has this trick then of opening bottles, which is to, to put them on the fire and heat them up until they pop, which they, they truly go about doing. Yeah, and um, so I think the, the, the two new characters who arrived here, Mr. Crofton and Mr. Lyons, um, Mr. Lyons is heavily implied to be Bantam Lyons, and in one of the earlier manuscripts, it, the character is referred to as Bantam rather than Mr. Lyons. So um, Bantam Lyons is, there's not much we can really take from this. He appeared in the boarding house as one of the other boarders and he pops up a couple of times in Ulysses as well in, in, in various pubs and gets a gets a racing tip. But I'm not really sure, and I, I, I don't know, John, if you have any thoughts on this, but I'm not, I'm not really sure what the role of Mr. Lyons or Bantam Lyons here is other than to provide maybe a, a foil to, to Mr. Crofton, who's described as quite a large gentleman and... If I actually give the, the full description of him here, because I think Mr. Crofton is probably the, the more interesting of the two characters. Um, Mr. Crofton sat down on a box and looked fixedly at the other bottle on the hob. He was silent for two reasons. The first reason, sufficient in itself, was that he had nothing to say. The second reason was that he considered his companions beneath him. He had been a canvasser for Wilkins, the Conservative. But when the Conservatives had withdrawn their man and chosen the lesser of two evils, given their support to the Nationalist candidate, he had been engaged to work for Mr. Tierney. So very quickly, Joyce kind of establishes, and I think he relies on the, the narrator to, to establish Mr. Crofton's character, because as, as we've heard in that quote, Mr. Crofton isn't saying anything, but he would represent kind of the very much the British establishment candidate, the conservative candidate. And now that the conservatives have withdrawn their support uh, or withdrawn their candidate, you know, they, they, they're, they're rowing in behind the nationalist candidate who they see as the, the lesser of the two evils. Yeah, again, it's the sense of apathy, the sense of muted endorsement going for, for this candidate because he is not as bad as the other one rather than anything positive to say about, about Tierney himself. Um, regarding Lyons, I also don't have a whole lot more to say. Again, when they arrive, he immediately asks, where did the booze come from? Again, another character enters and their first concern is either money or booze. And then later, Lyons makes some, some comments regarding Pernell, but yeah, he, he's generally a, a fairly minor character in this story. Moving on from Crofton and Lyons entering, here Henshi again talks about campaigning for, for Tierney. His description of Tierney, so he's, he's describing him to a uh, person who's more of a, a, a conservative, uh, wouldn't be uh, in favour of, of particularly nationalist things, so he's, he's trying to get this person to vote for Tierney. 
And so Henchy's way of trying to convince this conservative, this non-nationalist party member is to say, he's a respectable man, said I. He's in favour of whatever will benefit this country. He's a big ratepayer, I said. He has extensive house property in the city and three places of business. And isn't it to his own advantage to keep down the rates? He's a prominent and respected citizen, said I, and a poor law guardian. And he doesn't belong to any party, good, bad or indifferent. So yeah, so this uh, he's running as part of the the Irish Parliamentary Party, the Nationalist ticket. But he is here. Uh, Henchy is describing Tierney as uh, he doesn't belong to any party. As I've said, just this complete lack of ideals, and that some characters that I'm voting for him, he's part of the Nationalist ticket. For other people, they're trying to sell him as someone who you know he's not really a nationalist. He's just doing what's good for the country. He's only really concerned with money and what makes money and what makes money for people in the country. And so Tierney doesn't seem to have distinct political ideals here, other than this connection with, with money and making money. That's that's it exactly. So there's there's a real undermining, I suppose, of, of, of Tierney and, and, and the nationalist movement, I suppose, following uh, following the, the death of Parnell. So I think it's at this stage then we get into, and I think we've referenced this before, the discussions of the, the king's visit and the significance or the, the relevance of, of, of King Edward VII's possible visit and, and whether Mr. Tierney would support that or not. And um, it's, it's Henchy, I think, has an extensive quote here, but I think it, 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 it really very clearly sets out the, the position here. So, uh, listen to me, said Mr. Henchy. What we want in this country, as I said to Old Ward, is capital. The king's coming here will mean an influx of money into this country. The citizens of Dublin will benefit by it. Look at all the factories down by the quays there, idle. Look at all the money there is in the country if only we worked the old industries, the mills, the shipbuilding yards and factories. It's capital we want. So in some ways, Joyce is presenting, and I think you referenced this earlier, the uh, as Colgan uh, presents an almost Marxist um, idea of, of capital as being the product of labor and the value of capital is explicitly tied to the value of labor. Whereas Henchy and by proxy Tierney then are really more focused on the idea of industry and, and, and capital with with um, entrepreneurs owning and controlling the capital, the, the, the factories, the old industries, the mills, and the workers or the working class will benefit from their ability to work for these people. Um, so that, that really presents the, uh, the the two distinguishing parts. And I think the, the next quote then, Mr. Lyons kind of cuts across and says, um, what I mean, said Mr. Lyons, is we have our deals. Why now would we welcome a man like that? Do you think now after what he did, Parnell was a, was a fit man to lead us? And why then would we do it for Edward VII? So again, kind of contrasting this and, and, and kind of saying, Henshi and Tierney are, are kind of saying, look, if we bring the king over and we welcome him, that that'll result in an influx of money and we'll become a supplicant to the crown and they'll they'll reward us with, with money. And, and Lyons is saying, we got rid of Parnell because of his affairs and the, the, the kind of proprietary and the, the moral standing and guidance of the, the church and people's fear of impropriety. And now we're going to go with uh, Edward VII, who's a famous and serial adulterer, who's even more morally reprehensible simply because he's a king and we're, we're, we're kowtowing to that. So it's really presenting and it's teeing up. And this is, this is the crux of, I think, the story where Joyce is presenting Parnell as this fallen, uncrowned king of, of Ireland and, and this idea and, and, and the foreign monarch Edward as no better than, than Parnell and really probably worse than Parnell. And it's simply a refusal to acknowledge the significance or wealth or role of Ireland as a independent nation versus England and, and reliance on the crown. 
Yeah, it's interesting, actually, this description of Edward and, and his, his mother is, is one of the most controversial uh, paragraphs in the in the text of Dubliners, and it resulted in the publishers being very reluctant to publish the text, and it was one of the things they wrote to Joyce about. And so, yeah, there was, there was two things in it. One, uh, I think, ended up being changed in the text, which was, uh, Henshi starts describing King Edward and, and, and in a sort of a, de- a defense of him, tried to describe him as sort of like one of the lads. And so, so the way Hen- Henshi describes him is, Here's this chap come to the throne after his old mother keeping him out of it till the man was grey. That's the version that's in the text now, but the version Joyce originally wrote was uh, he didn't describe him as his old mother, it was his bloody old mother. Uh, and this word bloody uh, in reference to the to the dead queen was, was the publishers reacted very strongly to that and they were not okay with that. Further than that, this characterization of Edward as a, as an adulterer and the language used to describe him, even in Henshi's defense, where he's describing him as one of the lads and not being sufficiently reverent, was also a, a problematic for, for the publishers. And so Joyce, in his frustration trying to get Dubliners published, eventually decided to write to the king. Not at that stage, it had um, Edward had passed on and the new king was King George V. Uh, but he wanted to write to King George V to ask him, was this passage offensive to him? Um, he requested that King George inform me whether, in his view, the passage, certain allusions made by a person of the story in the idiom of his social class should be withheld from publication as offensive. Joyce received a, an answer, not directly from the king himself, but from a, a secretary. It was unfortunately uh, expressed that the, the king does not normally express opinions on such matters. So, yeah, it was inconclusive there. And Joyce could not then make use of this to uh, force or encourage his publishers to, to publish the book. So, yeah, just interesting little uh, historical note there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think we, we, we've referenced this a lot, but the publication history of, of Dubliners itself is... Is is a story in and of itself, nearly just the the, the lengths to which Joyce went to, and you know, case in point here, writing to the king to verify whether or not it's offensive, is very much, uh, I think, Joyce needling the the king, as it were, and, and and taking the opportunity to let him know his feelings, irrespective of whether they're published or not. So I think it's it's, it's at that stage then the, the the discussion kind of centers into zooms in on on, on Parnell, and we get a a few different perspectives on him. Um, we all respect him now that he's dead and gone. Our side of the house respects him because he was a gentleman coming from Crofton and he was the only man that could keep that bag of cats in order. So discussing their positions on Parnell and, you know, I think we, we, we've given the context for this already. So I don't know if there's more we need to dive in here, John, or... Maybe one thing I failed to mention during the earlier thematic discussion was, yeah, so as I said, Parnell united multiple different strands in politics or, or movements in Ireland uh, in terms of the Fenian movement, the violent struggle, the land movement, and also the um, the parliamentary movement. But one of the reasons that Gladstone was willing to work with Parnell was that he felt like Parnell kept the Fenian movement in check and the land movement to some extent, that there was a lot of chaos, a lot of violent violence erupting in the country. And during this period, uh, Gladstone had had Parnell imprisoned, um, but as he saw that things were getting more and more extreme, that, that more and more violence and rebellion was breaking out in the country, he realised that it would be easier for him to deal with, say, someone like Parnell, who could, I guess as Henshi describes him here in this story, uh, he was the only man that could keep that bag of cats in order. So Gladstone believed that by having Parnell there as a figurehead and having Parnell saying, let's go down the parliamentary route to achieve independence, that would be easier to deal with than having this, this outbreak of rebellion. So that, that's where that line comes from. 
At this stage then, Hines re-enters the room and discussion quietens down and it's Matt O'Connor again who brings up, I think for the third or fourth time, this poem or this piece of writing that Hines has produced. Hines recites the poem that he he's written in respect of, of Parnell and it, I think we'll read it out in its full because I think it's it's an interesting poem and it's a, it's a nice one. Um, so the, the preceding passage is actually, uh, Mr. Hines hesitated a little longer. Then amid the silence, he took off his hat, laid it on the table and stood up. He seemed to be rehearsing the piece in his mind. After a rather long pause, he announced, The Death of Parnell, 6th October, 1891. He cleared his throat once or twice and then began to recite. He is dead. Our uncrowned king is dead. O Aaron, mourn with grief and woe. For he lies dead, whom the fell gang of modern hypocrites laid low. He lies slain by the coward hounds. He raised glory from the mire. And Aaron's hopes and Aaron's dreams perish upon her monarch's pyre. In palace, cabin, or in cot, the Irish heart, where'er it be, is bowed with woe, for he is gone, who would have wrought her destiny. He would have had Aaron's famed, the green flag gloriously unfurled, her statesmen, bards, and warriors raised before the nations of the world. He dreamed, alas, but twas a dream, of liberty, but as he strove to clutch that idle treachery, sundered him from the thing he loved. Shame on the coward, cat of hands, that smote their lord, or with a kiss, betrayed him to the rabble rout, a fawning priests, no friends of his. May everlasting shame consume the memory of those who tried to befoul and smear the exalted name of one who spurned them in his pride. He fell as fall the mighty ones, nobly undaunted to the last, and death was now united him with Aaron's heroes of the past. No sounds of strife disturb his sleep, calmly he rests, no human pain, or high ambition spurs him now, the peaks of glory to attain. They had their way, they laid him low, but Aaron list his spirit may, rise like the phoenix from the flames, when breaks the dawning of the day. The day that brings us freedom's reign, and on that day Aaron may well pledge in the cup she lifts to joy, one grief, the memory of Parnell. So that's quite a intense poem, I would say. You know, there's a huge amount of allusions and, and, and things there. So I suppose for, for any listeners who aren't familiar, Aaron is the Irish word for Ireland. So it's referring to Aaron by, you know, despite being written in English, is, is, is referring to Ireland in its in its traditional language. Um, we've got the phrase, our uncrowned king, uh, referring to Parnell. And there's allusions to the church failing to support him and also to an establishment of Parnell as one of Ireland's heroes past. So this was, I suppose, linking in with, and we've talked about this in, especially in A Little Cloud, the idea of the Irish nationalist movement linking itself with the cultural, historical fables and myths of Ireland. So the idea of the, the, the Fianna and Cú Cullen and, and all these kind of mythological heroes of Ireland and the, the ancient Irish heroes and, and, and kings and, and rulers of, of, of the country. And, and, and this is very much linked with a lot of what the cultural revival and the Irish revival movements were doing in terms of re-establishing this, this Irish cultural identity and, 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 and redefining Ireland as a, as a nation distinct from, from Britain and, and, and informing its own cultural identity. It's an interesting one as well. Like you said, it describes Parnell as the uncrowned king of Ireland, uh, which is, was a phrase that it wasn't invented for this poem. It was something that many nationalists would have described him as at the time. 
Yeah, it's interesting as well that the the national imagination uh, in, imagines freedom from England involves having having this other king. Uh, interesting societal note rather than comment on the on the story itself. I don't have too much to say on on the poem. I think it's fairly straightforwardly fawning. I don't read too much into it other than it being very widely praising of Parnell. Um, obviously, Joyce is putting this in in the character of Hines, so there's a certain autorial distance there. But then when we consider as well, as you said, he, he wrote this uh, this letter in, in 1912 or this essay um, in the shade of Parnell. He is quite fawning of Parnell there and very defensive or defending Parnell's legacy. Um, so yeah, Joyce, also of course in Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, there's this scene at the, the dinner table where Simon Daedalus, the father of Stephen Daedalus, so Stephen Daedalus is kind of Joyce's stand-in in the story, you know, kind of like an autobiographical story. So his father defends Parnell over dinner against uh, Dante, his governess, and there's a there's a big debate there. But um, in, in a similar way, Parnell comes across looking quite well in that. So yes, yeah, so then we get to the to the reaction of, of everyone to the story, and we have, um, you know, first of all, we everyone is silent and then clapping, and said that even Mister Lyons clapped. So Mister Lyons, as we said earlier was asking why would we bring over King Edward when we got rid of Parnell for, for adultery. So Mr. Lyons is perhaps someone who would normally align with the Catholic Church's position, but even he claps here, even though the Catholic Church was, was earlier uh, against Parnell. And then we have Mr. Hines at this moment, his his bottle pops, his, his beer is now ready to drink, he can drink it, the cap is off, but he just stares absentmindedly showing the lethargy or the the lack of direction that has come as a result of Parnell's death that Hines, this character who's been at different points in the story quite strident or quite outspoken in his views, uh, is now, when he considers the death of Parnell and where things are now, is, is somehow just left speechless and moping about. Uh, and then the last the last reaction we hear then is of Mr. Crofton, the conservative character. Here we just hear, and it's the last line in the story was, Mr. Crofton said that it was a very fine piece of writing. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Lachlan. Yeah, so I think it's um, it's interesting that it briefly touches on all of the various characters and how they react, you know, as you say, Mr. Hines sitting flushed and bareheaded on the table. He's not responding to the bottle and people are clapping. Um, Mr. O'Connor is uh, taking out his cigarette papers and pouch, the better to hide his emotions. And it's then Mr. Crofton said it was a fine piece of writing but that's written in the passive voice as opposed to reported speech. So up till now, we've, we've seen all the characters kind of quoting each other, and this is just Mr. Crofton said that it was a very fine piece of writing. And I think Joyce is using kind of a literary technique there to to distinguish or delineate or to put a bit of distance between Mr. Crofton and what he's actually saying, so how he presents that. And it's it's interesting that that's the final line from the, the story, and it, it's kind of suggesting that there is a deflation I suppose to that ending line again as, as we've gone through the story we've struggled a bit to identify the denouement moments and I I do wonder is is it the poem or is it this reaction from Mr. Crofton you know the explicit the explicitly conservative candidate the only real representative of Britain um, or the traditional kind of British uh, establishment in in the room and he seems to be the one saying you know without wanting to openly acknowledge it is, is is kind of saying yeah it was a very fine piece of writing and i suppose i'm I'm not sure what joyce is trying to get at here if he's suggesting that the brits recognize the the folly of their ways in in kind of assisting in the undermining of uh of parnell and that there's there's definitely a sense of 
deflation. And, and I suppose, again, it, it's, it's important to remember the historical context. We talked about this, the idea that as this is being written, a lot of Parnell's legacy is in tatters. His missions are failing and a lot of the objectives he was setting out to achieve outwardly appear to have stalled and are, are failing miserably. Yeah, I'm not sure I would fully agree with you in terms of my reading of what Crofton or what it's signifying uh, in that sentence of Crofton's reaction. For me, I don't think there's realisation there in the part of Crofton that perhaps they've done the wrong thing. I think it's more that Crofton doesn't necessarily agree with the poem, but he doesn't have the strength of conviction or the will to argue about Parnell in this case. I think it's, again, like all the characters we've seen, they're not particularly... They lack conviction in, in what they're saying. And, and, and here we see Crofton again. He's just saying it's a, it's a very fine piece of writing, even though... He's not a, a character who, who, who favours nationalism. He only supports tyranny because he's the lesser of two evils. So this poem, which really shines a light on, on Parnell as, as advancing the nationalist cause, I think there's, for me, there's no way Crofton could really be endorsing that. But he is just willing to praise the writing. He avoids praising the content or the truth of the content. And it's just saying, oh, it's a very fine piece of writing, like the artifice, the way it was constructed, put together. That sort of thing. Uh, so he, he says that in order to say something positive to avoid starting an argument or disagreeing with everyone. But again, it's, it's, it's just another instance where the characters aren't really able to follow through in their convictions. That's how I read it anyway. Okay, no, that's 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 really interesting, and that that's definitely um, probably a more valid reading than my my own. So uh, no, I, I'll I'll concede on that point. But um, look, I think that brought us to the end of the story. So um, I guess we'll do a quick, uh, as, we, as we always do, a quick wrap up and a, a, an expression of our, our, our personal or in this case, I, I suspect, I wonder, is it, is it uh, political feelings on the story is, 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 is more significant? I'll kick us off. As I, I usually kick it to you first, John, but I'll, I'll, I'll go first on this one. And I'll say um, I like this story overall. I think it's, it's a challenging one to read. And especially if you don't have the cultural historical context there's a lot of allusions and a lot of references and, and passing that require you to have a good understanding of what's going on politically at the time in Ireland and as, as we said it's critical that you examine this as an artifact of the time it was written which is you know within 10 years is probably out of date with the political environment kind of immediately following it in that sense, it's, it's, it's one of the weaker stories in that I think there's less of a universal appeal to it. But I think as an Irish person, it's certainly interesting to get that perspective on um, on Parnell. And, and, and obviously Parnell is a huge figure within the, the Irish kind of nationalist movement and the historical context of, of, of the country. I mean, I definitely agree with you in terms of this story requires that understanding of the political context. I think yeah, the first time I read it, I was a bit perplexed by it. A lot of the other stories are... A little bit more plot driven or you can definitely see a sort of a narrative arc through the stories let's say and this one it really feels like people coming and going and talking and not a lot happening I mean in some of the other stories in Dubliners things don't happen but it's it's almost like a point that they don't happen whereas here it's not like there was some big thing that almost happened it's just it's like a general sense of malaise. So I think it's more difficult to feel passionately about this story for that reason. But I think this is Joyce being very explicitly political in his take on the situation of politics at this time. And so as a result, it's 
less like an like an a, a normal story. I do like it though as well. I think particularly as I've done the work to understand the context a little bit more, I think the story comes out the comedic moments and the, just the characters how they express themselves and their their lack of conviction becomes a little funnier and a little bit more engaging as you you understand it a little bit more. Yeah, so that's that's my kind of feeling on the story. Yeah, definitely. If you look at Dubliners as a single entity rather than 15 separate stories i think Dublin the collection benefits from the presence of this story and you know this this absolutely contributes more to the collection than it does as a standalone story in the sense that it very much presents as, as joyce has said you know he's trying to present the city of dublin as a whole and i think he very much you know the political context and the political positions are pretty clearly and explicitly laid out through this story and i think you would struggle to get this level of introspection and consideration of 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 the role of parnell without including a story like this one uh, or something like this needs to be in here to convey that message but it does mean that it sits out a little bit and it is a little bit distinct from some of the other stories in the collection yeah, I, th- I think it's interesting as well that this idea of political malaise or this idea of the transition from an idealistic politics to a, a more grubby, money-based, backroom-dealing sort of politics is, is something that comes up in other authors of, of the time. There's a famous poem by William Butler Yeats, uh, September 1913. And uh, yeah, he, he deals with quite similar themes in, the, in talking about the death of a romantic ideals. Uh, and, and kind of a more middle class saving and earning money sort of mentality. And so I'll maybe briefly read out the opening stanza to that, which is um, What need you being come to sense, but fumble in a greasy till, and add the halfpence to the pence, and prayer to shivering prayer until you have dried the marrow from the bone? For men were born to pray and save, romantic Ireland's dead and gone, its wit O'Leary in the grave. Uh, O'Leary being a, a, an Irish nationalist who, who struggled for, for the cause. So the the contrast there, obviously, with aving and praying and, and not really like actively struggling in a sort of romantic sense for, for an ideal is something that Yeats takes up as well in a slightly different vein, but similar sort of a theme. I don't know. I, I find it quite interesting that, that this feeling was, 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 was prevalent. And then, as you said, Lachlan, that in 10 years' time, you're going to have a rebellion in Dublin in 1916 and then Irish independence in 1920-21. Uh, yeah, it's interesting that this feeling that there's this malaise, that politics is going nowhere, rapidly gets overturned. Yeah, and actually, if I can um, if I can just pick up on one small point there. Um, so I think one of the recurring lines from that poem is um, romantic Ireland's dead and gone, and that's, that's also the same expression that's used to or that, that Joyce uses here um, in the discussion of Parnell, we all respect him now that he's dead and gone. So this this idea of dead and gone is is, is kind of constantly referring throughout this. And, and obviously Yeats and Joyce, I don't think were particularly close as individuals, but were certainly aware of each other and, and, and were very much in a, an artistic dialogue, I think, in, in a lot of their pieces and, and, and were very much aware of, of what the other had been publishing and, and, and been writing. But Joyce was outside of uh, Yeats's Celtic revival movement. But anyway, look, I think that, that, that gives you a good sense of Ivy Day in the committee room. One of the more important, and, and, and certainly I would, I would rank this as a, an important but not favoured <laughs> story of the collection, 
But uh, that's it for today. If you uh, you know tune in next month as we discuss a mother, the third last story in the collection, um, and the second last of the true short stories before we get into the dead. So uh, hope to talk to you then. I've been Lachlan Coyne. I've been John Cofelli. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you. Bye.